0: Life, I enjoy it very much, and it's fascinating to me, and it has been through the years, to observe uh, the providence God takes me through in the midst of preaching through His wonderful book, this truth, this disclosure of Him to us. Uh, This week I come to this verse that speaks of suffering, and um, I come to this verse in the midst of uh, someone I love very much with her husband, have had quite a week of suffering. And then I am reminded that though uh, we rejoice with those who rejoice, so yet that beaming light from the Ruchers is right here. Uh, Shane and Faith are here with that new grandbaby, and, and uh, the Ruchers are experiencing joy. Others walk into the auditorium with heavy hearts. Uh, Maybe hidden heavy hearts, uh, others not knowing the burdens that they're bearing. And I want to pray before I come to this text, and then I'm eager that you might be encouraged this morning. Thank you for being here, and I want to uh, pray before I preach. Heavenly Father, How many times in pastoral ministry have I thought about what David wrote in Psalm 1, verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. I need not labor to explain to you what people are facing in this broken world, groaning and travailing, waiting to be redeemed. Uh, We face a world that is shaking, a world that is broken. And in such a world, Lord, we suffer And we try to make sense out of it, and it's bewildering. Uh, And I thank you for your word, which gives us a way of seeing as we trust in Jesus and take the next step forward, even through hard things. And so, Lord, I thank you for those who come in this morning with a joyful, grateful heart. And those times come in life. And yet there are some who come more heavy hearted facing the challenge of life at this season of their life or through this circumstance of their life. And it's amazing to me to think that already you have searched them and know them. You know their very thoughts this morning, the experiences they are going through, and you're right in the midst of those experiences desiring to show yourself to them. Now, Lord, we need your help, and I'm grateful that you've made yourself available. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. I thank you that your door is always open. You don't have a closed-door policy. Your door is always open. We can come right into the throne of grace, wherein we find grace to help in a time of need. And, Lord, we've never lived, but that we've lived in need of you. And so, through Jesus, we come into your presence, grateful for the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. You never leave us or forsake us, even in the midst of hard things. And so, Lord, remind us of what is true. Help those of us who are suffering this morning. Demonstrate your presence to help in such hours of need. And I thank you for your sufficiency, I thank you for hope that is centered in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name I pray, asking you for your work in each life here today. Amen. Remember the close of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus talked about the wise man and the foolish man. Uh, The wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. But what is missed sometimes is the realization that both the wise man and the foolish man faced hard things. The rain came down and the flood came down. The flood came up on the wise man's house. The rain came down and the floods came up on the foolish man's house. So it wasn't that the wise man who had founded his life on everything that Jesus asked us to do and to say... Was shielded away from struggle. Now, if you looked at both houses, you would say both of them faced the same things. And so, suffering is part and parcel of life in our broken world. Everybody suffers. One of the amazing things uh, and the ironies is that everyone does not suffer in equal proportion. Everyone suffers, but not everyone suffers well. Now, followers of Jesus suffer along with people who do not follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus get pancreatic cancer. People who don't follow Jesus get pancreatic cancer. It comes with a turf in a broken world. But followers of Jesus suffer differently But here's the open secret, since it's just us kids. Not all followers of Jesus suffer well, nor suffer hopefully. Faith, courage, stamina, perseverance, resolve, fold up like a cheap deck of cards after some doctor's appointments and tests revealed. The faith house of cards falls like a cheap house of cards. And so the question this morning is, what keeps the intrepid follower of Jesus at it for the long haul in faithfulness to this one who loved us and gave himself for us? How do we stay at it with hope and vitality? How do you keep going when you face pressure, when you face suffering, Is there a cause for hope and for fortitude? Can we make it to the end in this broken world going through suffering along the way and maintain our faith in Jesus Christ? These questions are before us today. Are you suffering? Are you going through a hard season? I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm eager that your heart might be encouraged. There is so much in the next verse of our study in the book of Romans that this morning, the sum total of the Bible passage we are looking at is one verse, it's our next verse. It's a sweet verse. Come with me together this morning to Romans chapter eight and verse 18. It's here that Paul makes a declaration that introduces a paragraph. We'll go on and look at the paragraph next week. But this declaration is one to fold up, stick in our pocket, and with all of our might, go forward with Romans 8.18. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. The Apostle Paul wrote this in the first century to a group of followers of Jesus who were living in Rome. For I consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us here, the word of the Lord. I want to go two different directions this morning. First, I want to note with you, and I love this characteristic of the word of God, how realistic the Bible is about actually real life. Uh, It doesn't varnish over anything or gloss over it or candy coat anything. It's actually candid and honest about how life is. And we're going to look at the realism in the first point. There's no Pollyanna spirit here. It's just the unvarnished truth about the way life actually is. Secondly, how does Christian hope change us? What difference does it make that we've been brought in Christ to this living hope? How does that change the experiences that we go through in this broken world? So that's our plan of attack. Now, the, the very first thing in hearing that verse is to understand that Paul is making a strong assertion. And he begins by saying, "For I consider that, Uh, there's another way of uh, uh, translating that, is that Paul's saying, it is my settled conviction that, or we could say it further as, I am firmly of the opinion that, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us So first, let's look at how realistic the Bible is. The Bible is realistic. Life in a broken world is hard and involves suffering. Now we knew from Job that as sparks fly up in a fire, as Job described, we face trouble in life. Now there are three deductions from this verse I want us to lay hold of. We must embrace this. First, suffering and death Come with life in our sin cursed world. Now you might be saying, Mounts, good night. I came to be encouraged, and you start out. You know, what kind of a point is that? No, don't miss it. Life is great. I love life. I value this gift from God. It is in Him that we live and move and have our very being. It is He who gives life and breath to all things. Life is great, but all of us face demise. Suffering and death. We all understand what Lisa read from that passage in Second Corinthians. Uh, the outward man perishes. And uh, all of our arthritic bones said amen as she read that today. Uh, I had a friend who lived to 95. Just a wonderful, happy, intrepid follower of Jesus. And I've told you before, he told me, he said, Eric, the key... The pressing forward is making the most of a diminished thing, and many of us here this morning—some of you are not yet to the diminished thing. You get there. <laughs> Stay tuned. But we face diminished things, uh, suffering and death come with life in our curse I love life. Life is great. Uh, this week, I—I I, I was walking close to dawn, and uh, it was breaking day. And, and there's no, there's, it's, it's the fat city day to take walks in the spring. Because as the day breaks and that sun starts out, those birds take off singing. And God taught them how to sing. And they were all singing their songs. And I was listening to the various tones. And I thought, it's just great to be alive. I'm happy to have life today. And, uh, and just praying with the Lord and walking. I love life. But life comes with suffering and death. I don't appreciate that. And neither do you. Christianity has an explanation for why the world is the way it is. It wasn't like this in the beginning. Because God made everything that was made, and he saw what he has made, and behold, it was very good. Remember, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. What's a summing comment on all of creation? It was very good. But then sin entered and death came. Now, one of the glories of Christian hope is it's not going to be like this now in the end. The story begins in a garden and it ends with a wedding in paradise next to the tree of life. And Jesus came to change this old broken world. It's a glorious story. Christianity has an explanation for suffering and death. Other worldviews do not. If you say, you talk to them, well, hey, hey, tell me, what about the origin of evil? What about suffering and death? What about it? I mean, is it aimless? How do you explain it? I can't explain it. It just is. It's just a part of life. What? Death is a part of life? No. Death came as a result of sin's curse, which entered life and messed things up. But he who is life himself entered life. To put it back together, Uh, one of the most glorious verses in the Bible is when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, and Jesus says, behold, I will make all things new. That sounds very sweet to me. All of us, uh, as has been said before, are homesick for Eden, even though we've never been there. Because we were built for a world not inhibited by sin's curse and death coming. So Christianity has an explanation. Do you remember the first time that you went to a funeral home as a child or even as a young adult? I remember my grandfathers, my dad's dad's brother died. He had seven brothers. And uh, uh, dad and mom deemed it, uh, well, Eric, you'll go with us. And so I went. And uh, you know, it's shocking, you know, dissimilar in other things. You know, we had this habit of staring at mortal remains in a casket, you know. And so I, I walk up there with my dad and, you know, and, and he was uh, initiating me into this rite. And helping me through it. it, it good father, it was actually a, quite something. And then he was explaining about Uncle Bronson. And uh, he, he, he told me about, he, said, he had big old Mount's hands. And he worked for the railroad all his life, and his railroad pin was on on his uh, jacket. And um, uh, so we went up there, and, and I left, and I thought, wow, that's odd. Wow, whatever that is, I don't like that. And because I didn't know him and had never met him, it didn't hit with emotional force as if I was really close to him. But it reminded me of a reality that we all face in a broken world. And um, I don't like the reminder. I don't need the reminder. Uh, but suffering and death come with life in our sin cursed world. That's one deduction from Romans chapter 8. The Bible's very realistic, it tells it like it is, it tells us the truth. Now, the second deduction is this some of this suffering, not all of it, some of this suffering is attributable to our association with Jesus. This is where verse 17, which we looked at last week, ties in with verse 18. Look at verse 17. Remember, let me just go to 16. This spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. By the way, he Discloses this motif that he has here for Jesus and for us. There is suffering followed by glory for those who attach themselves to Jesus. This association with Jesus, we used the word last week, the entourage, uh, the entourage of Jesus, those in union with him by faith. We are heirs of God, we are joint heirs with Christ. We are associated with him. Now something comes with association with him in life. And that is resistance from the culture. You see, Eric, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. They killed Christ. And they've never appreciated all that is in the world. And the world system has never appreciated our Lord Jesus Christ. The perfections of his life. The benefits of his death the glories of his resurrection. That is foolishness to a watching world. They don't appreciate that. To acknowledge him is to have to say something about themselves that they don't appreciate, and that is their need of him in our sin. And so we face pressure from the world that brings suffering. Not all travail in our broken world is persecution, but some comes from that very thing pressure from the culture against Christ. That's the tie between verse 17 and verse 18. And these first century Christians were facing pressures. What everyone is coming to recognize is there's a rising tide of pressure against gospel Christianity in our culture. How are we doing? Are we prepared? Are we ready for intrepid faithfulness, come what may? Verse 17, provided we suffer with him, the entourage of Jesus, those associated with him by faith are going to face pushback. I mean, they killed him. A part of our suffering in this broken world is the tyranny against followers of Jesus. We're not the home team. We're just passing through, visiting this world. Here we have no permanent city. Heirs with Christ, fellow heirs. There's a price to be paid to be in the entourage of Christ. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now that verse is interesting. It says what is true about a person living with a godly, living a godly life. But the question that the verse poses can be rather troubling. Are you being persecuted right now? Have you ever been persecuted right now? Isn't the logical deduction from that verse that if you are godly, you will be persecuted. If you are not persecuted, it may be because... You are not godly. Now, remember Nicodemus, it took the death of Jesus on the cross to smoke him out. Remember, he was a secret believer. Are you Nicodemus before the cross or Nicodemus after the cross? Once he saw the sacrifice of the death of Jesus, he was willing to put his life on the line and went and got the body of Jesus. Are we these secret, sleuthy followers of Jesus? Are we out there? And Paul says, if we're out there with the rising tide of a culture bent against Christ, we will face pressure and persecution. There's a part of suffering in our broken world that relates to an association with Jesus. Cancer, financial setbacks, loss of a job, Parkinson's. Is that the kind of suffering that's in the world, Eric? Absolutely. And by the way, that suffering comes to those who follow Jesus and those who Don't follow Jesus. But it's not only that, plus, it's slights, promotional Passovers, accusations of bigotry and hatred, ostracization, socially being overlooked. And it's the most severe form. There are people every year who die a death of martyrdom Because of their faithfulness to Jesus. That's persecution. So it's both the broken world of suffering plus the world that hates Jesus and puts pressure on us suffering. We face the brunt edge of both. Third deduction is this from this verse. Again, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hear the word of the Lord. Our future hope rests on our future hope reshapes our present travail. In the midst of our suffering, and all of us have it, we don't always have it at the same time, we don't always have it at its depths. It's episodic. We face episodes and come in and out of it in our broken world. All of us face it, but our perspective as we face it really matters. You've watched it with me. In the midst of some suffering, some get bitter. Some despair. Some give up. Not everyone suffers the same. One great quality of Christian hope is that it changes how we go through suffering. I have a hard time not being prejudiced and biased toward people who have suffered well. Um, People have gone through really hard things and I know what they've gone through and yet on the other side or even in the midst of they are not in some artificial, superficial way but in a very real authentic way they are joyful and hopeful notwithstanding the very tough circumstances they're facing. I really admire those people. I have trouble not being biased toward them and drawn toward them. Because life is hard. It'll kick you right in the teeth. It'll take us down. One great quality of Christian hope is that it changes how we go through suffering. The hopeful can endure about anything in contrast to the fact that it takes very little to take down those who have no hope. In fact, hopelessness is often a preamble to despair. But after the resurrection, none of the entourage of Jesus can argue that they don't have an excuse for hope. And even in the darkest hour, even the very nature of the resurrection, which changed everything, Saturday night life looked like one thing, Sunday, Easter morning, it looked completely different. And God is that great to change the calculus. The Bible is realistic. Life in a broken world is hard and involves suffering. The Bible is honest about the way life really is in our broken world. Now, Eric, okay, that's three deductions about how it is. That's not helpful. Well, let me try to help you with this. Here we answer the question, how does Christian hope change our lives and our experience in our broken world? Christian hope changes our life in our broken world that awaits redemption. Hope changes the calculus of how we live. It reshapes our strategy. Let me explain how it changes it. Again, the text. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us here, the word of the Lord, hope changes us in at least three different ways. Number one, our future hope induces us to patient endurance and suffering. If we keep going, we'll get to Romans 12, 12. Be patient in the midst of suffering. He's already introduced this. If you turn back the page to Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, remember what he said there that we went over? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's a footnote on what is said elsewhere in James 1, 3 the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This ability to remain under the pressure, get through the suffering, traverse down paths that are difficult and laden with travail. But we get through it with great hope. In the early 90s, there was a man who was dying. He was a hemophiliac. And as a boy, through the 80s, before they were testing blood product, he took a unit of blood that was HIV positive that took flight in his body. As he went forward, it eventually developed into full-blown AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, and it took his life. And his story became somewhat celebrated and he was a joyful follower of Jesus Christ. He had come to the place in his life where he recognized that God could not accept him with his self-righteousness, that he didn't have the right stuff. And he looked to Jesus and saw in the perfections of his life and the God-satisfying sacrifice of his death hope for a man to be forgiven and to come to have eternal life. And he placed his faith in Christ and became a joyful Christian. And as he was dying, God gave him a platform, because this story was somewhat celebrated, God gave him a platform to tell other people about Jesus and the hope that we could have in him. And he said this, he told this story, he said, when I was a boy, he was talking about how hope, From God had captured his heart. He said, when I was a boy, my dad used to describe to me and my siblings what vacation was going to be like. So he would tell us where we were going. And he would describe to us what we were going to see. And he would explain what we were going to experience. And from his words, he said, I would frame an anxiousness to get there. Because in my mind's eye, because my faithful father had told us, I began to see what we were going to experience. And so before we ever got in that car for vacation, I was already sipping a little bit of the glories of what we were going to have there when we finally got there. Because I could see it because our father had told us just what it was going to be like. And he said, I'd be all anxious, getting ready to get in the car. And one of the things that would help me get through the journey of rolling down the miles of the road to get to the vacation was what he had told us about what we were going to experience once we got there. And he said, I am finding as I get closer to death... That those same butterflies that I used to experience as I thought about my dad telling us about what we were going to experience is rising up with me. And it's not about some lame vacation in the States. It's about the glory of the bliss of the promise of God to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm excited. And that was the spirit in which he died. And it marked the people who heard him tell that story. We can endure just about anything if we know it's going to end well. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? I got something to tell you. It's good news. It's going to end very well. It's going to end very well. That's Paul's point here. Our future hope induces us to patient endurance and suffering. Secondly. The second way hope changes us. The harder our suffering, the more eager we are to realize our greater hope. Now, this is where you get to the comparison part. You've heard that. Are not worth comparing with. Those words are here. Now, it's a little tricky on the comparison, so think with me clear through. Now, you heard Lisa read the Scripture well. Uh, This momentary light... Affliction. Now, by the way, when I get in the midst of suffering, one of the impressions I'm not left with is that it's momentary. Nor that it is light. It feels like an elephant is sitting on my chest. Uh, and it is almost as if you'd beg for a stronger word than affliction. That's just not quite strong enough. Or at least when you say it, you affliction. Oh, you know, you've got to say it hard because it's terrible. Momentary, light, affliction. Wow. You want to hear what Paul's momentary light affliction was? How about this? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all these other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. This momentary light affliction. What was wrong with him? He was infected by a hope that is steadfast and sure since Jesus Christ entered his life on the Damascus Road. Now the argument utilizes a first century rhetorical device, a way of speaking. And what he's saying is, It's not even reasonable to think that you could compare these two together. Now, when we think of comparison, we think of a, uh, you know, uh, an anniversary dinner out, two husbands talking about what they did for their wife. You know, one says, hey, your 25th anniversary, mine too. Hey, what'd you do for your wife? I'll tell you what. We went to Jeff Ruby's and had the best meal we've had in a while. No kidding. Well, that's nothing compared... To me, I took my wife to McDonald's and got her a Happy Meal because she's really happy to be married to me for these 25 years. You say, those things don't even compare. They're not worthy of comparison. Now, if you want to hear a lecture on relativity, do you want to hear a lecture from Albert Einstein in full stride in his days at Princeton? Or do you want to hear a lecture from a toddler that for the last two weeks since their birthday has listened to baby Einstein, you know, in the nursery? Well, of course. There's no comparison. Think of absurd comparisons. And Andy told me, we were talking about this. I think you already shared that. I'm going to share it again, sorry. In 1981 in April, I just finished playing basketball in college through God's mercy and the bunch of great guys I played with had a good run. And a church in Elkhart, Indiana, that actually David Graham went to pastor after I went there and did this. But anyway, uh, they invited me to come. They wanted me to speak to the students. And um, that weekend, uh, with me there at the church was Doug Collins, who was then a, a, a professional basketball player, playing with Dr. Julius Irving. He played with two Hall of Fame guys and... Uh, uh, Julie Serving and, um, oh, the guy from North Carolina. That's terrible. Bobby Jones. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Daryl. Bobby Jones. And so, uh, I mean this, this guy's at the top of his game and I get to spend a weekend with him and it was so fun for me. You know, it's like, uh, a little leaguer walking around Babe Ruth, you know? And so we get to the church on Sunday morning and the plan is Eric and Doug are going to go classroom to classroom with the student classrooms, you know? So, um, I mean the place was electric. They were jazz, man. This is this guy's, you know, he plays with Dr. J and Bobby Jones, and he, he would such been a star in the NBA. So we're walking room to room. And of all things, and I don't know who thought of this. Uh, maybe somebody meditating on this verse that they didn't obey, this not worthy comparison, because they made this sheet that was handed out that had our pictures on it. On one side, There's Doug Collins in some cool NBA post, Philadelphia 76ers. Now, right next to that on the 8.5 by 11 page, there's my picture, you know, Cedarville. It's like, it's like, and so we'd walk into a room, and they're all wanting to uh, have him sign their picture. And they're all want, trying to figure out who I am. I had a buddy who spoke at a conference and sat down. I forgot who he sat down next to, but it was, it was an author's table to have your book signed. And um, they were all buying the other guy's books. So he said, after a while, he just took the guy's book opened to the first page and would hand it to him to sign it because nobody, you know, it was kind of like one of those experiences for me. It's like, who is this lackey coming around with Doug Collins? I want Doug Collins autograph. Now There was no comparison He was living in a total different world than I was. They just invited me to go, and it's kind of fun for me to be there on the weekend. But that's ridiculous to put my picture next to his and call that basketball, you know? No, that's that's not fair. That's Paul's point here. There's no comparison. And, and, And what he's saying is it's not even a worthy comparison because it's not a little bit, And it's so much more, uh, so much greater, you won't remember the little bit. Remember, the little bit is the suffering, it's the terrible, it's the horrible. And even the depths of the horrible is not worthy to be thought of alongside the glorious experience of what is before us in the realization of the promise. No comparison. The harder our suffering, the more eager we are to realize our greater hope. Notice the proportion that's in play here. You say, but Eric, my suffering has been great. I've gone through the hardest, the darkest days I've ever faced. Those days have only helped you realize in proportion the glories that are yet before you that you couldn't realize unless you droned along through the dregs of that depth in the midst of the suffering, not worthy to be compared to the glories that shall be revealed, which finally then the third change that hope makes is anticipating our participation in the future glory changes the experience of our present suffering. The verse ends with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can also translate that the glory to be revealed in us. The idea is we are going to participate in this. We are not auditing this and watching glory be experienced. We will actually experience the glory. Uh, my last college basketball game, sorry for too many sports illustrations this morning. There's one dear one who chronicles how many I have in comparison to other things (laughs) Um, my last college basketball game, it was the last game in this gymnasium that they scuttled after I graduated and built a new place but um, uh, we're playing to go to the national tournament Uh, the game is tied Uh, there's uh, five seconds left and we have the ball at our end and um, uh, I know that Followers of Jesus aren't supposed to do this, but it was a, uh, the play was a big deceit. It was deceitful play. Uh, Everybody thought I was going to get the ball, and so they were all around me, and I threw it to this other guy, nobody's around him, and he shot, and he made the shot, and we won the game, and the the place was packed, and a University of Michigan uh, marching band guy who loved the brass, he had 50 pieces in the pep band, and the gym was small, and and, and the the place is just rocking, and, and this is Pre-internet, and there was nothing to do. So all the students were there, and as soon as the ball goes in, um, I mean, it was glorious. We were going to the national tournament, and as soon as the ball goes in, all these people stream out of the stands and come on the floor, and it's just like a huge basketball mosh pit on the floor momentarily. You, you couldn't, you know, and they were all running around and everything, and you couldn't move, and and the game was just getting over, and we couldn't get to other players. It was glorious. It was a wonderful moment, but there were two participants that day. There were some who, in the spontaneous glory of the moment, ran right out of their seats onto the floor and filled the floor. There were others who stood back, and so they saw the glory, but there were some who ran down on a floor and ran around and participated in it with us. It was really good. What Paul is saying is that we will not be auditors of this experience and watch Christ experience glory and get his rightful due. But as a part of his entourage, as being a fellow heir, we're gonna participate in it. And the anticipation of that participation changes how we suffer in this present moment. We will experience, participate in this glory in the revelation. That's how powerful Christian hope is, according to the Word of God. Knowing what's on deck can reshape the unpleasant experience of suffering. And maybe you're feeling this morning in your innermost soul. Aunt Margie was dying of kidney failure. One of my dad's mother's five sisters, and we were down in the county where he was born in southern Ohio, And I was with my dad, and and dad said, Eric, I think we'll stop and see Aunt Marjorie on the way home. I don't know if we'll have another chance. And at that point in my life, I had not been around death, and I had not been around people dying, and I didn't know what to say, I didn't know what to do, and I just went in with my dad. And I was standing there next to Aunt Marjorie's bed, and dad was trying to encourage her, and she was suffering that day. And as I stood there, of all things, I thought about Romans eight eighteen, For I reckon that the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And I thought, you know what? I should say that verse to her. But I was too timid. I was a junior in the room. You know, I chewed on my tongue and went to the car and didn't say it, and we drove away. I thought of Aunt Marjorie this week. And dad sought to encourage her and shared hope with her and prayed with her before we left. But um, this verse is super precious and one to fold into our resolve, into our hearts, into our lens through which we look at suffering as we travel in this good way following Jesus Christ, allow the truth of God to feed your soul this morning. It's true. Our hope is that great. Heavenly Father, grant that as we sing, the Spirit of God would stir our hearts, remind us of our hope, embolden our resolve, give us courage in faith, and bring us to see Jesus yet again in all of his beauty who's brought us to such an incredible hope. Oh, Lord, make us people of hope that are intrepid perseverers that slosh right through suffering on our way home to that which is beyond comparison. We love you. We need you. We acknowledge you. We worship you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.